might think that Virgil's comment to our pilgrim would be the end of things in Canto 15 of Inferno. It's not. Brunetto still has more to say. Our pilgrim still has more he wants out of Brunetto. A complicated canto. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, the podcast, the only one I know, that slow walks through Dante's work comedy. We're in the 15th canto of Inferno. If I said, we're in the last 24 lines of it, lines 100 through 124. We're going to finish off our time with Brunetto Latini, and it's going to end in ways that are almost unimaginable. So let's do it. Lines 100 through 124, Canto 15 of Inferno. Nevertheless, I went on talking with Sir Brunetto, asking him who were the most notable and imminent of his compatriots. And he to me, it's good to know some of them, but of the rest, it's better to keep my mouth shut because there's not enough time to list them all. In essence, you should know they were all clerks, big shots of letters, and great men of fame, all dirtied up in the world by the same sin. Prussian is one of the sad gaggle, and Francesco da Corso as well. And, you could see, if you really yearn for scaly filth, the one who the servant of servants transferred from the Arno to the Bacchiglione, where he left his stretched for evil flesh. I could say a lot more, but my departure and my speech can't hold out much longer. I can see a new smoke rising from the sands out there. People are coming. I'm not allowed to be around them. Be so kind as to keep my treasure close. I'm still alive in it. I have nothing else to ask. He turned around and seemed like one who runs across the fields for the green cloth at Verona. And he was like one who takes the victory, not like one who loses. That's the bit, the final moment in which Brunetto Latini runs away naked as runners ran in Italian foot races in Dante's day, turns around naked and runs across like one of the great runners at one of the great races of Dante's time, like one who takes the victory. Aren't we in hell? We are. I'm not going to go through this passage line by line in order. Instead, I'm going to back around and up through it and finally end up back at the top of it again. So I'm going to start in the place where Brunetto takes out. The pilgrim wants to know who else is there gossip or just general curiosity about the bedroom tricks of people. And Brunetto says, you know, I can't tell them all. There's just too many here, and it's best to keep my mouth shut, which doesn't really make quite sense, but we're going to let it make sense. He says, though, in essence, you should know they were all clerks, or maybe if we were in the UK, we'd say clerks. The point here is that Brunetto identifies most of the homosexuals, and again, it is my assumption that we are amongst the homosexuals. We'll talk much more about that in the next episode of this podcast. He identifies the bulk of the homosexuals as clerks, that they're almost all, I guess they all are clerks. This is because in medieval sociology, such as the term might be in the Middle Ages, sociology, homosexuality was seen as the rampant sin of the church's universities. It was seen as absolutely shot through the learning structure 
of medieval society through whatever kinds of universities, and they were all connected with the church. But he says they were all clerks, big shots of letters, and great men of fame. Notice this, this still this notion of fame. And then he lists three of them. And let's just go through the list. First, he starts with Priscian. Priscian is the Latin grammarian of 500s common era. If you learned Latin in high school or in college, you kind of learned it through the prism of Priscian. Um, he, there, he's a, a, a famous rhetorical figure, a figure who uses language in certain ways. We'll say much more about that in the next episode of the podcast, but let's say for now, Latin grammarian of the 500s common era. And then Brunetto goes on and points out Francesco Da Corso. Da Corso is a renowned jurist from Bologna of the 1200s common era, well-known figure in the courts, well-known through the legal system. And then Brunetto points out a third. He said you could see if you really yearn for such, and I translated it as scaly filth. It's something like scabs or that which flakes off the skin. It has a very nasty and common and vulgar feel to the language as we would now expect. If you really yearn for such scaly filth, the one who the servant of servants transferred from around the Arno, who he's referring to is Andrea de Mozzi. De Andrea de Mozzi was a bishop of Florence, and he got transferred to, he says here, a river Bacchiglione. It's a river in Padua that goes out through Vincenza. He became a bishop of Vincenza, and he is transferred there by Pope Boniface VIII, Dante's arch enemy. We're going to be talking a lot more about Pope Boniface VIII in weeks ahead, so I'm just going to drop out that when he says the one who the servant of servants transferred, he means Pope Boniface VIII. And you should know that bit there, the one who the servant of servants transferred, it's very bitchy. It's it's very crude and crass and sarcastic. The one who the servant of servants transferred from around the Arno, that is Florence, to the Bacchiglione, that is this bishopric in Vincenza. And then the final line here is the most vulgar of all, where he left his stretched for evil flesh is the way I translated it. You should know that this is a very difficult line to translate. It's very vulgar. When I translated it stretched for evil, there is the word evil or bad in there. And then there's another word that means blown up or stretched or tumescent or stretched out. And then there's this word nervi, which can mean sinews or flesh or muscles or nerves. Medieval anatomy lessons aren't exactly modern anatomy lessons. This could be an extreme vulgarity for homosexual sexuality. It could be an extreme vulgarity for this man, Andrea de Mozzi's genitals. It could be for other parts of his body that are stretched out. I don't want to get crude and crass. I'm just telling you that this phrase is very coarse. And I want to stop right here on the coarseness because we've had scaly filth and now we have this, mm, we could say protuberant sinews or tumescent flesh. When Brunetto enters the text, as he does now in the 15th canto of Inferno, from here on out, 
Inferno is going to get increasingly crass. And many, many commentators point to this, that the language of Inferno coarsens the deeper into hell we go. And there's going to be a lot more references to bodily functions and genitalia, very crass references as we now head down through the rest of Inferno. It's true, many commentators point that out. But what I always find so amazing is that the language particularly coarsens with the advent of Brunetto Latini. It's Latini that brings in some of this extraordinary vulgarity that is now going to carry out through the rest of Inferno. There is a way that Brunetto will be with us from now on as the language coarsens on down through the rings that we're going to pass. Mm, there's Brunetto. So that's our bit about who he points out and why he points them out and the notion of homosexuality as rampant in the church and universities. Let's pass on to the rest of what he says. Brunetto says there's smoke rising from the sands out there. He sees out in the distance of these burning sands. Remember the firefall of burning stuff that's coming down like snowflake, but fire coming down. And he sees out there across the sands, there's more burning. And he says, I could say a lot more, but my departure and my speech cannot hold out much longer. I can see a new smoke rising from the sands out there. As I said, people are coming. I'm not allowed to be around them. This is a curious bit, and we're going to have to save this for the 16th canto of Inferno because these people are about to show up. Why Brunetto cannot be around these people is the subject of much debate. But we're about to get another group of, I would say, the Sodomites. Other people will disagree with me. We're going to talk about that in the next episode. But we're going to get another group that is going to show up. And Brunetta says, I'm not allowed to be around them. Why? Why does he have to be with Priscian and with Francesco da Corso and Andrea de Mozzi? Why does he have to be with them and not with this next group? It is heavily debated in the commentary. And I would not be able to come to any answers. I feel, and wow, this is just some guy on a podcast making a pronouncement, but I feel that any answers to this are guesses because there's almost no way to pin it down. But it is curious that Brunetto claims he's not allowed, he's not permitted to be around this next group. We may find some hints when we meet them in the next canto, so we'll save it and we'll pass on to the end of Brunetto's speech. He finishes off with, be so kind as to keep my treasure close. I'm still alive in it. I have nothing else to ask. Now we know what Brunetto wanted out of our pilgrim all along. Keep my book close. Remember it. He's talking either about the tresor or the tesaretto, and it is debated in commentary which of the two he's talking about. Most people, because he says treasure, assume it's the tresor, not the tesaretto. Hollander the eminent dantista who just died, will tell you it's tesaretto, not tresor. So just know that that's a bit fudged in the commentary about what it is, but it doesn't matter. I could translate it as be so kind as to keep my book close. It just happens to be treasure in the text. I'm still alive in it. That's the bit. That's what Brunetto wants. Make sure my book stays alive because that's the only way I will ever be remembered. It's a fascinating line because finally we see Brunetto's motivation. 
He may have seemed paternal to our pilgrim. He may have seen beneficent to our pilgrim. He may have seen a peer of our pilgrim. And yet at the very end, we realize he's wanted something all along. There's been an undertow, an unwritten agenda, a hidden agenda underneath all of this. And that's don't forget me. And how do you not forget me? You keep my books around. It casts a pall back over the entire canto. I'm not saying that this is necessarily wrong. Of course, Burnetto wants to be remembered through his books. And yet at the same time, we now look back over all those discussions of Fiesolans and, oh, don't sit with me. You'll get burned up, but I'll walk along beside you. And, oh, you're like a paternal figure to me. You're like a sweet and caring father to me, the pilgrim says. We look back on that now with slightly jaundiced eyes. This is why I kept saying to you, don't take everything Brunetto says at face value. Part of it was because I don't think you should take the damned at face value. And part of it is that I knew there's a hidden agenda that will get expressed in the text. And here it is. Keep my book, one of my works, close. Keep it alive because that way you will keep me alive. But you know what? There's somebody else with a work. Let's go back to the top of this passage. If you remember, Virgil, in our last episode of the podcast, in the last passage, spoke and said, you know, well heard is well noted. I think that's the way I translated it. Bene ascolta chi la nota. Uh, well heard is the one who notes it, or ha well having heard is the one who notes it, or something like that. I think mine was a little pithier. <laughs> well heard is well noted, but okay, he said that. And Virgil said that, and then we go into this, and he says, nevertheless... And that conjunction, which is right there in the Florentine, nevertheless. So Virgil didn't shut up our pilgrim, even though Virgil said his aphoristic, well-placed, beautiful phrase. Nevertheless, I went on talking with Sir Brunetto, asking him who his most notable and eminent of his compatriots were. And the word for notable is noti, noted, as in what Virgil just said, bene ascolta Chi la nota, noted, glossed, who is the most glossed and eminent of his compatriots. Noti, nota, it's repeated. And you know what's really curious about this canto? And now we turn to what is ironic in the entire canto. You know what's really curious and ironic? When Brunetto launches into that big thing about, oh, the pure Roman seed, and it was ruined by this peasant stock and all that stuff, right? Remember that? There's pure Roman seed standing right there. Virgil. He's been here all along. And if Brunetto is yearning for a kind of purity, a literary purity on the dung heap that the Fiasolans have made out of Florence— Virgil wrote about the Trojans who became the noble Romans in the Aeneid, putting down all the country low peasants who tried to resist their taking over the Italian peninsula. There's the true Roman. There's the famous guy. You want to be remembered? You're worried about how to be remembered in a text? There's Virgil. He's right there <laughs> with the Aeneid. Do you realize that under this entire canto about how to be remembered and how to be famous and who were the pure Romans and what what works are well glossed, there stands 
Virgil, silent, mostly, except for one line. My gosh, the irony, the thick, almost impenetrable irony of that. They've been talking about it. They've been discussing how to be famous. They've discussed well-glossed texts, all in the presence of a silent Virgil. Is that because their obsessions with fame and being well-noted have silenced the true old Roman standing back there? Or is that because they're so caught up in their own head games, they haven't noticed they're walking with someone who could speak to this matter better than either of them could at this point? Or haven't they noticed that the guy who's glossed way more than either of them, although now Dante is the much more glossed of the trio, but okay, at the time, the one who's glossed the most is standing right back there. Even Brunetto said, who is this who leads you? And he never gets an answer. The irony that Virgil is here is so thick and that Virgil would say, you know, well heard is well noted. And then the very next terse, it would be nevertheless, like not paying attention to him. I kept talking to Sir Brunetto, asking him who are the most noted, glossed, of his compatriots. See, this thing is constructed more carefully than you could ever imagine, and it's pulling itself in all different ways, and most fundamentally, toward irony, which brings us to the last lines of the canto. Brunetto turned around and seemed like one who runs across the fields for the green cloth at Verona, the famous foot race. And Dante says, you know, he turns and he takes off like one who gets the green cloth. That is that which you win. That's the first prize. That's the gold medal of the race at Verona, the green cloth. The runners ran naked. They did this great foot race that was quite popular in the day. And I should tell you, the loser got a rooster. A rooster is, of course, a vulgar symbol of male sexuality. And that it ends here with he was like the one who takes the victory, not like the one who loses. Wait a minute, he's in hell? Do you not see that the ambivalence is thick right here? It is thick toward Brunetto from both the poet and perhaps the pilgrim too, but certainly at this moment from the poet. Because here's this guy, he looks like a total winner. He's in hell. And by the way, the loser of that race would get a rooster, which is a vulgarity for male sexuality. Ah, so the whole thing is turning toward a punchline, turning toward a thicker irony, and of course, it's all about eternality, because these are all the ways, getting the green cloth at Verona, writing a text that is well-glossed, that you will be remembered in this world at least for a while, because, although I made a big deal about this last time, I want to just clarify it, all souls for Dante the poet are eternal. Everybody lives forever. It's a question of where you live forever. Do you live forever in paradise or do you live forever in inferno? No soul is lost. So the question all throughout this canto is about worldly fame. And how does one get fame in this world? And how does one keep that fame in this world? There's a great book by David Eagleman. You should check it out called Some, 
S-U-M, some, 40 Tales of the Afterlife. And in it, he basically offers 40 tiny little short stories about what happens to people after they die. But there is one that always sticks in my mind. Basically, the afterlife is an airport waiting lounge, and you have to stay in this airport waiting lounge until the last time your name is said on Earth. Some people enter the airport waiting lounge and almost immediately leave it. But many people are stuck there, like Plato and Shakespeare and Aristotle and Dante. Dante doesn't come up in Eagleman's book, but still, Dante would be there. And some of the ones who are stuck are super irritated. You know, if you're Plato, you just want everyone to shut up and quit mentioning you because you're sick of sitting in this airport waiting lounge. Just imagine sitting at the gate at an airport for thousands of years and you're sick of it and you just don't want your name spoken of again up on earth. But the problem is you can't leave until your name is no longer spoken in the land of the living. And I can't help but think about that in terms of Canto 15, because Canto 15 is about how to be remembered in the land of the living, how to make your name sit, how to, and one of the ways is you pull, you pull up to a pilgrim walking across hell and you just say your name right out. I'm Brunetto Latino. I'm the guy who wrote, and I, you name your own works. You know, in good media training, you say your name and you say the name of the work you wrote and you say them both a thousand times so everybody remembers them. It's how to be remembered on a worldly level. And yet, of course, memory on a worldly level is inconsequential for Dante, the ultimate Christian, in the face of an eternity in which you have to find a place, either home, ka, or hell, here, where Brunetto is burning up on the sands. The ambivalence in this canto is expressed about fame, about Brunetto, about the vernacular, about Virgil, about Romans, about what you're writing, about how to be glossed, about how to write it, about how to keep notes, about how to treat your teacher, about how your teacher treats you. There is an amazing amount of material in Canto 15. We've barely scratched the surface, but we got one more episode, a kind of rebuttal to me and my interpretation of the canto. I'm going to offer you an alternate reading of this canto. So in the next episode, subscribe to get there. Stick with me. We're walking through Inferno. We're walking on to Purgatory and on to Paradise. But for now, we have passed the fourth great sinner of hell, and he is astounding and so difficult that we're going to have to do another episode to try to clean up or rebut some of the things I claimed about him or at least recast him in contemporary scholarship. So stick around. Come back next time. Rate this podcast. Drop a comment. That would be fabulous. Connect with me on Twitter. Use the hashtag WalkingWithDante. I'll connect with you. You can connect with me or on Instagram. And I will see you back here for more of Brunetto next time. I'm Mark Scarborough. <laughs> see, I said my name. And this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.